Hello, my name is Jordan Marr, and this podcast episode is a result of a partnership between the University of British Columbia Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab and Organic BC. Together, they hosted a workshop series on soil management for producers in BC. Both workshops in the series, one on organic nutrient management and the other on the use of tarps and cover crops as overwinter soil cover, were held online in March of 2022. The workshops featured results from on-farm research trials conducted by the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab, and also included farmer-to-farmer discussions. Funding for this podcast has been provided in part by the governments of Canada and British Columbia under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial-territorial initiative. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to one of two podcasts that have been recorded to delve deeper into each of these research projects through conversations with the researchers and farmers involved in the field trials. In this episode, we'll be learning about some research on organic nutrient management conducted by Amy Norgard for her master's thesis. Building on work already conducted by the UBC Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab, Amy's project examines strategies farmers can take to manage nutrients on their farms more effectively with an aim to reducing undesirable environmental impacts while meeting crop nutrient requirements in a cost-effective manner. To start, you're going to hear my conversation with Amy, and then somewhere in the middle we'll interrupt that so that you can hear the perspective of one of the farmers who participated in Amy's study. I think that's all you need to know. Here's my interview with Amy Norgard. Amy Norgard, thanks a lot for joining me. It's, uh, it's, I've been really looking forward to talking to you about your work. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm also really excited for our conversation. Okay, so Amy, we're going to talk about the research you've uh, conducted over the last few years, and I thought we would start by discussing uh, a problem and a myth. The problem is typically what's going to inspire a researcher like you to conduct some research, um, and then the myth we'll get to in just a sec. So um, I want you to tell me if I have this about right, but it's like an age-old problem in agriculture um, for farmers who want to get the appropriate amount of nutrients to their crops to apply more than enough to make sure the crops are getting what they need. Is that a, that's a very rough, but, and broad, but fairly fair statement, wouldn't you say? Yes, definitely. What's the major environmental problem that comes from that approach? Applying those nutrients in excess can result in those nutrients being lost to the environment and primarily, or at least the nutrients that I focused on that have kind of those those more major environmental impacts are nitrogen and phosphorus. Kind of leaving our farm fields uh, via different pathways, whether that's leaching or through erosion and getting into local waterways. And then, yeah, that's kind of where we start seeing negative impacts in terms of uh, impacts to water quality. Okay, so... There's, there's the problem, but let's zero in by talking about what I think is can be a myth among organic farmers, which is, mm-hmm. but Amy, I'm an organic farmer. I don't, have to wor- <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to worry about this because the primary way that I apply nutrients to my fields is in compost. And so all of the nutrients in, in my amendments are organic and in a stable form. And so leaching is just much less of an issue. Right, Amy? Amazing. Um, Yes, great. We're doing some myth busting. So yes, I do hear that quite often. Um, And it also means that I'm the bearer of bad news. Um, Organic farmers are doing great things for the environment in a lot of different ways. But in terms of nutrient management, we can definitely have similar impacts to 
uh, to other farming systems that maybe aren't using organic sources of nutrients. So we still can have, um, as you said, like leaching of nutrients. So that would be referring to like leaching of nitrate nitrogen at the end of the season if there's um, too much of that left in the field. So Amy, I think we should, or I should ask you to clarify that um, like part of the reason for this research like in the regions of BC that you studied in is that, um, you know, the lower mainland, particularly in other aspects of like Southern BC are, are heavy livestock producing regions. And so we end up with a lot of manure in commercial composts. And that is relevant when we talk about like compost with, you know, decent amounts of nitrates and phosphorus, correct? Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, this research, as originally kind of from the UBC farm is studying this problem that you've alluded to is that we have this livestock industry here in the Fraser Valley and the livestock are eating grain and that grain has a bunch of phosphorus in it, um, which means that their manure is enriched in phosphorus and that manure has to go somewhere. So it gets, it gets spread on the, um, the surrounding agricultural lands, you know, croplands, organic farmers are using it. Um, but then basically having that density of livestock and also the urban population that we have here as well, which are producing, you know, food scrap uh, compost that have phosphorus in it too. So that has to go on the agricultural lands here as well. And basically, you know, our agricultural lands can only take so much phosphorus until they're saturated. And um, so that's kind of, yeah, the premise of, of this study. And it doesn't, it's not just here, like anywhere in North America um, and, and further abroad as well. Like this problem exists and, it, and it's being studied and it's always connected um, to a livestock density. Okay, so let's now talk about your research then. So right. um, you essentially wanted to explore nutrient cycles on organic farms in situations where compost is being applied. Fair enough? Yeah, the, the problem that I was really kind of focusing in on my research is this um, reliance that organic farms have on using compost and manures to meet nutrient demands and to kind of pull that apart even more, specifically using those products to meet crop nitrogen demands. And, um, you know, obviously we want to be meeting our crop nitrogen demands. However, when we use these products to do that, unfortunately, the ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus that's in our compost doesn't match the ratio of those nutrients in what our crop actually needs and takes out of the field, you know, in crop harvest. And so when we apply compost in quite quite large amounts to, to make sure that we're hitting our nitrogen needs, we're actually applying a bunch of phosphorus, uh, which is, you know, great for our crop to have phosphorus, but it's in excess of what that crop actually needs. And so when you're doing this year after year, you're you're basically just building up phosphorus in the soil. Okay, so let me stop you there. So I think, I assume as a farmer myself that it is more um, widely understood that nitrates and other forms of soluble nitrogen getting into our water tables is a problem, a little less so about phosphorus. So you can can you just confirm that, that phosphorus is also a major problem as far as like macronutrients from our, um, our amendments that can leach into our water tables and, and cause environmental problems? Yeah, so even... Um... So yeah, just that word that you've used. So you're describing like leaching of nitrogen out of our fields. That's accurate. Um, but then using leaching to describe phosphorus, definitely a little bit less accurate. Um, I mean, if we get into the nitty gritty details, yeah, sure, we could have some phosphorus leaching, but um, that's 
more uh, more so we talk about leaching in terms of nitrate uh, leaving the field or nitrogen leaving the field as nitrate. And we actually, yeah, so it's a different process. Um, and it is a bit, um, it's also dependent on like some field characteristics. So how phosphorus, the primary pathway of phosphorus leaving our fields and getting to our, into our waterways is actually by erosion because that phosphorus, um, it is attracted to and sticks to our soil particles. And so you actually need that soil part or, you know, also could be in our organic matter, which, you know, that's um, concentrated kind of in that top, top area where we're applying and incorporating our compost. And so those, whether it's organic matter or the actual soil particle with the phosphorus attached to it, um, it leaves the field through erosion, you know, that can be wind erosion, water erosion with precipitation events. Um, and then that's getting into our waterways. So there's kind of layers of, um, of aspects to that. Whereas with nitrogen or nitrate, it really is a bit more of a, you know, a, a straight across equation where we leave nitrates in the fields at the end of the season. And we have one opportunity where our cover crops could suck that up. You know, you plant like a fall rye cover crop, it can absorb that nitrogen, but that's going to be your one chance. Chance, And if that doesn't happen, at least here in our very um, wet winter climate, most of that nitrate is going to leach. There are some climates that don't get nearly the precipitation that we do. Um, there's pockets of those climates here in BC, but they're definitely few and far between. And the general rule ac across our province is that that nitrate will leach. Right. So whether it's nitrate leaching or phosphorus causing problems through other mechanisms that you've described, both can be a problem when they are over applied to our fields. So I just want to I want to clarify that that that's 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 something that you were trying to address in your research. Yep. Um, and and this is a, this is a big enough problem that we're actually right in the midst of some new regulations for farmers in BC, aren't we? Like regarding this problem, can you um, elaborate? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't speak to them in great detail, but you, I can definitely confirm that. Yeah, you're correct. Those new regulations um, started getting phased in in 2019, and I believe it's actually a 10-year phase-in process. So it's coming in quite slow. It's going to give a lot of people or a lot of farmers an opportunity to kind of like, you know, figure out how they're going to be affected, if they're going to be affected, when they're going to be affected based on this phase-in. Um, and that 2019 phase-in, it really was just targeted to specific regions of the province that are um, actually experiencing these, these issues already, um, or just kind of in those high-risk environments where you have high soil phosphorus next to a waterway or things like that um so yeah sorry can't provide too many more details beyond that um it is fairly nuanced um and i'm not fluent in those those new regulations but yeah those are coming in and um hopefully that those will provide more opportunities for some of this um uh nutrient management work on farms okay so back to your research and the problem that, yes. that you're trying to address here so what essentially what what we've observed is that um, in a lot of cases, farmers are applying compost at levels to address their crops nitrogen needs, but that ends up because of the relationship between nitrogen and phosphorus in a lot of compost that ends up representing an over application of phosphorus. Do I have that? Right yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And you know, in the short term, really not, uh, not too much of an issue. You can build up phosphorus to kind of get to a sweet spot where you're going to hit this like agronomic threshold where anything beyond that in terms of adding more phosphorus probably isn't going to help your crop too much. Uh, whereas below that, you know, you can kind of keep adding until you get to there. And then once you're there, you really just want to add just enough phosphorus to replace what your crop is exporting off your field every year. And then kind of, you know, no more than that. If you have kind of this buffer room, so if you if your soil is currently low in phosphorus, you can overapply 
or you can apply phosphorus in excess of what your crop needs for a few years. But eventually that will catch up with you and you'll start hitting kind of these like excess phosphorus levels. Okay. So yeah. if, if you, if you, you know, in, in deciding to address this problem, clearly mm -hmm. you saw the potential of alternate strategies in terms of, because you, you recognize right in like your study itself that, that meeting the crops needs is, is of utmost importance, but really it's, it's trying to, de to study, to determine whether a, a, a really a better balance can be struck between environmental concerns and, and crop needs. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and I mean, as you say, with recognition, like these regulations coming in and I definitely want to step back for a second and not take credit for uh, research design. So this research is actually, kind of a continuation of research that has been happening at the UBC farm for several years prior to me joining the research lab at UBC for this this project. And so that research happened, I think, you know, for about four years at the UBC farm, and they were testing kind of these different nutrient strategies, which are just different combinations of, uh, of inputs, and looking at different trade-offs and measuring different outcomes um, across a variety of parameters we're kind of finding a couple trade-offs and the results were interesting. And then just also just kind of realizing that, you know, that's cool. This is really interesting research, but it applies to this site specifically. And when I say that, that's like, you know, applying to the UBC farm site, it's, it applies to their soils, their inputs, um, that climate, but then what does it actually mean for, you know, all of these other farms and all of these other contexts. And so that's kind of where this research came from. And I can describe, uh, just to provide even more context to that. So in my project, the treatments, quote unquote, that I was trialing, so the nutrient management strategies, one of them was, as you, or as we've discussed, is that really high compost application. And it really is like for a visual for the people listening, it's a couple inches of compost. I mean, it depends on the nutrient content of your compost and your crop needs and for how much you actually apply. But you know, on average, it's a couple inches, it's a fair amount of compost. And then at the other, uh, other side, so the second treatment was, you know, reducing compost application to just meeting uh, phosphorus needs. So just replacing what the crop's taking. And, um, and that was just a skiff of compost. So those are two very different compost applications. And then that second treatment that is just that skiff of compost was also getting an organic fertilizer to top up that nitrogen um, needs of the crop. And for our project, we were using a feather meal fertilizer. Right. So I just, because I read your study, I want to, I want to clarify um, right. or reiterate. You had two kind of types of plots, right? You had one that you called your trial research, which was, it sounded like a little bit more in depth and that took place at two two places, two farms. Yes, we called those um, like the experimental sites. Sorry, that's right. Those are the experimental sites. And then you did your trial sites where you were all over the place. You were at, I think, well, how many farms did you, yes. did, did this take place on? Yeah, so we had the experimental sites. Um, and so those were at, Two different farms so ubc farm and then green fire farm on vancouver island and then yeah so the research sites that i was working with um yeah they were on about 20 different farms working farms for two seasons so 2018 and 2019 and they those 20 farms were spread across three different regions so the lower fraser valley up in pemberton and then also out on vancouver island so it was a busy two years right sounds mm -hmm. like it and it, it, part of the point in, in being that comprehensive was to be able to make observations on in different microclimates and soil types 
Yeah, we wanted to see how each of these treatments performed in terms of um, we measured five different outcomes, and I can definitely talk about those in a second, um, but kind of looking at these outcomes and trade-offs between them and how those might be influenced by the actual characteristics of the farms. Um, you know, you can imagine everybody has different uh, levels of soil organic matter, soil phosphorus, the types of inputs they're using, like the list goes on for the different characteristics. And so just trying to figure out different contexts that you know some of these nutrient management strategies might do better or maybe perform worse so maybe before we proceed any further i I just want to stop and dwell on the fact that like this project you really were working with a lot of farmers and i know that's that's partly to enrich your data and and partly to make sure that your research is as useful as possible right yeah for sure um i feel like most of the decisions that we made in this project were kind of always with that bigger question of like, is this measurement important to farmers? How can we make it uh, more useful to them? Um, how can we also provide value to them just through this research project happening? Because, you know, some of these questions get answered and they're for other uses, as you said. So yeah, one neat part of this project was that all the compost testing that we did, all the soil testing that we did, all of the, those results were shared back to the farmers, um, you know, as quickly as possible. That wasn't always the case, um, but hopefully in a way um, that was useful for them, um, which was a really neat, neat outcome as well. So it's, it was a little bit different how you manage the plots in the experimental um, situation versus the trial farms. Right. But, but essentially, you have mentioned this already. I just want to reiterate it so it's, it's yep. really clear for people. Um, you were in both cases, experimental or the trial farms, you had what you called typical applications. And I assume that means typical for that farm, that specific farm, what they would typically be applying to the crop uh, ahead of the season. Yes, exactly. So it wasn't influenced by us. We just, you know, measured what farmers were applying. Right. Then in both cases, you also had like what you call, I think, was it high compost or heavy? Yes. But essentially a big dose of compost where you'd be adding a whole bunch kind of to be thought of as targeting that nitrogen need and and likely therefore probably putting on more phosphorus than needed. Yes, lots of phosphorus. When you look at, um, or when we did calculations to look at how much phosphorus was going on, it was a, yeah, it was quite quite an amount. Okay. And then, then another type of plot application was a lower amount of compost so such that you can think of it as targeting the phosphorus needs of the plant not Mm -hmm. the nitrogen needs but then topping up with a nitrogen only organic fertilizer to to make sure that the nitrogen needs are met yeah exactly okay and then on the experiment the experimental farms um or the experimental phase you also just had a nothing plot where you didn't do anything to it so that you had a control correct I was just going to say, yes, in research, we call the nothing plot, uh, the control plot. And yeah, exactly. It didn't um, it didn't receive any any application. And then the other difference between the experimental sites and the farm sites is that the experimental sites were also replicated. So each of those treatments were also replicated four times within, you know, one farm field, whereas at each of the um, each of the working farms that we that were in our study, each treatment was on each farm once so you can just imagine you know there'd be three plots each plot has one of those treatments right okay yeah so at this point i imagine there might be the odd farmer listening who's like screaming inside because and they're saying well i don't just add compost for nitrogen and phosphorus i mean another major reason is to um is is soil carbon is increasing uh, organic matter in the soil so i i'm gonna i'm saying that as a segue because you said you were going to talk about the different kind of factors that you were evaluating. So can you tell us about those factors? 
Yeah, of course. And so that is, um, yeah, kind of why we measured uh, this diversity of outcomes is, as you say, like there's these trade-offs in terms of, you know, we can't tell organic farmers to stop putting carbon on their field, you know, as compost. And so, yeah, to go into that, the five outcomes that we were interested in and that we measured, one of them was um, a measure of soil carbon. So it wasn't total carbon. It's a, it's kind of like a, not a subgroup, but it's a, a fraction of the total carbon and it's called permanganate oxidizable carbon or POXC is what uh, we call it for short. And so, yeah, that's, um, and we measure that as, you know, soil organic carbon is slow to change. You can change your carbon inputs for several years and maybe you'll see your soil organic matter or your soil carbon, that dial might move. It's quite slow. Um, it doesn't really react to management practices very quickly. Whereas in the research world, we're trying to figure out, you know, what can we use to measure things to see these changes uh, a bit more quickly or, you know, trying to find indicators that are more management sensitive and so poxy is kind of discussed in the literature as being that indicator so that's why we chose that so that soil organic carbon measurement is the first one then of course we measured these nutrient indicators that we've been talking about so we measured uh what's called post-harvest um, nitrate and so that is just measuring how much of that nitrate ion is left in your field at the end of the season we also measured soil phosphorus and so that's three of them we measured crop yield, of course, because that's what we're all interested in. And then we also measured input costs, um, which is just, you know, looking at how much did the compost cost, how much did this other fertilizer cost. And in now analyzing all those outcomes, the whole idea mm -hmm. was was to ultimately have a better understanding of how the how, how a good balance can be achieved between yields, between the cost of the inputs we're using, the environmental cost of what might be of what might be over applied, and then also your 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 soil organic matter levels as you've described. So um kudos just to like make it kind of nice and real world. <laughs> I mean uh, attempting to. I still, you know, when you're in this, you're always thinking about the other things you could have measured. So I think yeah, we did a good job of trying to capture, as you say, as many uh kind of contrasting measurements as possible but th there's always room for uh for improvement okay amy i think that's all i want to like dwell on as far as um methodology um because and i'm saying this to everyone listening there's ample opportunity to go and dig in right and in the show notes of this episode um there will be links to go and really, if anyone cares to dig in on a farm, like you have, you have farm level statistics, I believe, right. Of like some of your findings. So, um, just in the interest of, of keeping things concise, we're going to move on to results, but, but anyone who's interested can, can one way or the other can go and find those results. Um, if they want to, if they want to delve in. Perfect. That sounds good. Awesome. So I'm just going to, I'll leave it open-ended for now. Maybe, maybe I'll just ask you a very broad question. Tell me, tell me what you observed after all of this work. Yeah. Um, that is the, the golden question that everybody wants to know. So yeah, I'll keep it simple. I think we found some trends that are interesting. I'm just going to start with talking about like the real patterns that came out in our data that as we would call in the research world, like statistically significant differences. And then I found some other stuff that um, is also other items that came out of this research and the data that we collected that's quite interesting. So um, going across those kind of like those five indicators that we measured, one uh, tangible and maybe expected outcome is that, of course, 
that high compost treatment um, did have much higher phosphorus um, at the end of the season than that low compost treatment. Um, again, kind of as expected, it is really neat to actually see that phosphorus soil test change so quickly. And the second one we measured was the soil carbon, as you were asking about previously. And we did not see differences in um, the POC C or kind of that um, that measure of soil carbon that we used in our project. So we didn't see differences between the treatments in that, which was surprising because that high compost treatment was so much compost and so much carbon being added to the field. And I mean, in my mind, you know, you can just kind of think through the process that happens. Like that's not an indicator that you're not changing the amount of carbon that's in your field. Cause I know how much I added it actually to me more is, you know, a signal back to the research community of like, this might actually not be as sensitive of an indicator as we thought. Uh, the third one is post-harvest nitrates. Mm -hmm. And, um, the short form of that, we didn't see any differences between the treatments in post-harvest nitrates, but I do have some trends to talk about, but I'm going to like sidebar that for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, and then coming back to your question of like that myth of, you know, I'm using compost. I can't be bad for the environment. Um, we, for the most part, that was true. You also already asked about like those, um, these regulations that are being phased in for our province for kind of, you know, trying to make sure that our fields don't have a lot of nitrates in them at the end of the season and reducing our soil phosphorus. And there's kind of the, a threshold that the province has released for that. And um, only 5% of the plots in my study had post-harvest nitrates at values above that threshold. And so in my mind, that's great. Like that is, you know, uh, you have high post-harvest nitrates for various reasons. Like if you have crop failure, then all of that nitrogen that you applied will still be there at the end of the season. And that's kind of out of your control. You can plant a cover crop and do your best. And so there are kind of these other reasons outside of our control for that. So yeah, that was some good news. So that's the post-harvest nitrate indicator. The fourth one was yields. It was a bit, yields were an interesting story. So again, across the board, no yield differences between the nutrient strategies, kind of to be expected, um, uh, just given that all the nutrient strategies were in theory designed to meet crop nutrient demands or requirements. Um, but there was, you know, that's kind of the across the board um, theme. But then if you zoom in and actually look at these different regions and it was a two-year study. And so we did find in our model, there was a significant difference in the second year of the study, only in the Fraser Valley, where our high compost plots had higher yields than the typical plots. And to kind of, um, then of course we asked the reason why, of course, we tried to figure out like the, um, the pattern that's going on behind that that can explain that. And the best that I can come up with from, you know, analyzing what was going on in those two plots is I think just like a simple, it really came down to like nitrogen availability and application rates. Again, this is theory. Like we have that treatment difference where high compost yields were higher than typical, but then looking closer at the data, it did seem like the farms that that was happening on the typical plots that had lower yields, 75% of those plots we're applying slightly less nitrogen than our high compost plots. And so it kind of looked like they were maybe slightly under fertilized. And then there was one, so 25% of those plots that just applied like four times as much nitrogen as what we were applying. And you actually can have um, reduced yields by applying too much nitrogen, especially to things 
like our root crops where you'll actually just, you know, you have carrots with beautiful carrot tops or, you know, potatoes with beautiful potato tops and then their roots just don't grow. So that was my guess for why that happened. Okay. Yeah. And then take us through input costs and then I'm going to kind of try and provide a round us out. Yeah. Great. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, So our last piece is, as you say, the input costs and um, in that one, no across the board differences, but again, if we zoom in on the Fraser Valley, we did find that our high compost plots or our high compost application and the uh, the second treatment, the low compost plus the nitrogen fertilizer, those treatment plots were more expensive. The inputs for those treatments were more expensive than the typical plots um, in the Fraser Valley. And that's it. So those are the five indicators that we measured. Can I add one more trend to this? And Tez, I think it'll round out the summary of like what farmers can take away from this conversation. Okay, so there was, we did another analysis, which doesn't give you statistically, or it doesn't help you define like statistically significant differences between treatments, but it helps you look at trends. And so one of the most interesting trends that came out of this other analysis was that in situations where the typical treatment, so what farmers are usually doing, in situations where that treatment had higher yields than our two uh, research treatments, that also um, went hand in hand with those typical plots also having higher nitrates as well. So I know that's a lot, but it basically is hinting at what we talked about earlier is kind of this, this over application of nutrients to guarantee yields. And so Again, this is only a pattern that we can talk about where we saw these two variables kind of like move together or have a relationship. And so basically the typical plots having higher yields kind of came at the expense of also um, having too much post-harvest nitrates in the field. And so when I kind of look at that piece of the data and also combine that with like the small area of like yield differences in the Fraser Valley possibly being tied to nitrogen, uh, nitrogen applications, to wrap back to your kind of looking to have some tangible takeaways from farmers, one of those really was just um, the opportunity to to kind of implement just really simple nutrient budgets. Like what we we're doing in our project definitely is nothing, you know, we're not using any fancy like soil biology testing or, you know, testing to do um, like side dressing, side dressing in the middle of the summer. But I think that that kind of was, yeah, one of the, more interesting, tangible takeaways that could be implemented on farms. Okay, well, let me let me try and repeat a version of that back to you. Great. So that, right? So, like, um, on the commercial farm trial plots, let's remind everyone that you had you allowed the t- you had a plots that were applying yes. the, the, the farm's typical application. Then you had plots that were doing um, high compost, right? And then you had plots yep. that had less compost. And then adding a high nitrogen fertilizer to meet the the the, the nitrogen needs. Okay, yep. um, when it when it was all said and done, you didn't see major differences between those three applications. When we talk about soil carbon, um, when we talk about yields or input costs, with with a few with a few asterisks on that that you went into, yeah. But you did notice some differences with regards to nitrates and and phosphorus. And so what it seems to speak to me is that A, your study somewhat validates this idea that we do need to be thinking about the impact of over-application of some of these amendments. Yep. And that if we did, I mean, if, if I 
I don't know if I, I look at this and I think, well, if, if I did then want to figure out how to analyze my soil better and try and reduce my environmental impact, what your study seems to suggest is that I could be trying, say, a lower compost with the addition of a of certain target fertilizer approach, and that seems to be cost effective and yield effective when compared to like higher compost approaches. Yeah, exactly. And of course, as you say, I think you use the word asterisk, like, yeah, across the board, that was the trend that we were seeing, you know, there's gonna be these unique situations where specifically in the Fraser Valley, you know, input costs are lower, compost are less expensive. So, you know, the, the finances might not or that lower compost application with a with the uh, feather meal fertilizer might not be the most economically feasible option. But, you know, without apart from that, of kind of like these context-specific situations, as you say, um, it points to an opportunity to kind of improve nutrient management for better environmental outcomes, for sure. Okay, so Amy, I'd like to now kind of broaden out and get practical and and ask you, just right. not necessarily as, as the scientist who worked on this, but just as someone who was absorbed with this stuff for a few years, right? Um, just try and help me understand as a farmer how I might take some of your findings and apply it to my farm situation. And so just in the sense of like, how do I, how do I make the right decisions? Like if, if essentially I come away from this conversation or from your research thinking, oh, I think, I think I could do a better job of, of um, like I could, I could lower my environmental impact by, by changing the way I'm adding amendments. How would I literally go about doing that correctly as far as what tests you might suggest I have to do mm-hmm. um, and what considerations I have to make as far as input sources and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and of course, this is all context specific, given that, um, yeah, all the reasons, or sorry, all the regions that we worked in, all of the farms were quite different. Um, but some main takeaways definitely would be, so answering that first question of, you know, what tests would I start looking at? Um, the easy one would be starting with uh, testing for soil phosphorus. That's quite common. I mean, if you're going to do soil testing for fertility, you probably just want to get the whole like basic fertility package where you'd be testing like, you know, your pH, your organic matter, uh, potassium, et cetera. Um, but barring that, because that is a whole nother conversation, uh, just really focusing in on kind of this uh, nitrogen and phosphorus balance. So yeah, getting that phosphorus test would be a good place to start because there is, you know, there's no guarantee that you've got high soil phosphorus. Um, we have that situation here in the Fraser Valley, but that's not true of uh, Vancouver Island and Pemberton where they actually have low to moderate soil phosphorus. Um, so yeah, starting with that soil phosphorus test and then um, where to go from there, then also paying attention to that carbon balance, because, you know, even though we didn't find that carbon difference in our study, um, this was a short term study. And so, you know, if you're reducing carbon applications over the years, if you implemented that lower compost strategy, you're going to need carbon from somewhere. Um, and so that next step would be then looking at, you know, how can I introduce cover crops to my system um, or other sources of carbon where but in my mind, you know, growing your own carbon on farm via cover crops or uh, is kind of an ideal place. And that really is, you know, if, if I was to imagine this research to kind of continue, it'd be really nice to see how do we integrate that lower compost application with some sort of cover cropping strategy to make sure that we're, you know, as organic farmers still being um, stewards of uh, of the soil and keeping that carbon in there. So I, get, I, I, um, I guess my primary yeah. practical question is, 
as a farmer, mm-hmm. let's say I'm a farmer who is kind of a, a high compost type of farmer, uh, just, just yes. dose my soil with compost every year. <laughs> how do I determine the difference between a high compost and low compost application? Like, how do I literally know? Right. How do I make, it's got to be a fairly straightforward calculation to be like, oh, I should, I should drop my compost load by this much and then I should add right. this much nitrogen specific like feather meal or something. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay. So, yeah, so say you've tested your soil phosphorus and you are in that higher category. As you say, I'm going to make that assumption because you're telling me that you're uh, you're the farmer who likes to dump on compost. And so you've done that soil test. Your soil test phosphorus is high. You're getting kind of that recommendation of, you know, either stop applying phosphorus entirely or at least back it off to be equivalent to how much you're taking off the field with your with your crop. So that would be targeting crop phosphorus demand. And so the best tool that um, that I would refer farmers to is on the BC Ministry of Agriculture um, Food and Fisheries website. Um, there's a whole nutrient management uh, planning section on their website, and they've developed a whole suite of new tools. They actually have like that nutrient management planner calculator. Um, but, you know, the easiest thing to do, they have a manure nutrient calculator, and I would just go play around with that. And you can basically... Um, change your up, you know, use the drop down menu and choose what kind of compost you're using, you know, are you using horse manure, steer manure, poultry litter, uh, you know, food scrap compost, etc. Um, go use that calculator, plug in your application rate, and it'll spit out how much uh, how much phosphorus you're applying, and you'll be able to get an idea of that and whether that lines up with um, uh, with how much you should be applying based on your soil test. To add to that, if um, when you use that drop down menu, I'm kind of trying to jog my memory, but I believe that if you choose compost, uh, I don't know if it pre-populates the data for you, whereas like it will pre-populate for if you choose kind of the standard selection of manures, you know, as I said, like poultry litter, um, horse steer, et cetera. But because compost can vary so widely, depending on, you know, the feedstocks that are going into it, I don't think that calculator actually pre-populates data for compost, but you can go on to the UBC Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab website, go to the Organic Vegetable Nutrient Management Project page. And if you download the final reports from this project that we've been talking about, um, scroll right down to the bottom of there. And we have all of the compost data that we collected from uh, from the project, and so you can kind of you know see if see if whether we actually tested a compost that you're using, if you're in these regions that we're talking about, or um, if you can kind of figure out what your compost is similar to, or ideally you would actually just get a compost test right from your compost provider if gonna, that's an option, oh, depending on I mean, where you're was, getting that's it from. That's what I was just about to say because most most okay. providers I've ever worked like bought from have an analysis they'll provide you if you ask for it. I mean, they've if they're if they're a serious yes. compost maker, they've analyzed their own compost and can give you a sense of what's in there. Yes. Yeah, so that would be ideal. As you say, like if they're at a commercial scale, they should be providing that to you. Um, and, you know, in the absence of that, if it's not from a commercial operation, you can also test your own compost. Um, but in lieu of, you know, those options, uh, that data is on our website and it's available um, if that's useful for people. Yeah, so that would be kind of your using that tool, plugging in data if you need to for your compost to um, come up with the appropriate application of compost to kind of back off that, uh, that phosphorus application. So Amy, we're we're almost done, but um, I wanna I wanna broaden out even more and just get you to like educate us a bit or speculate. Like earlier in the conversation when we talked about like the role of the Hey everyone. We'll get back to the rest of my conversation with Amy in a few minutes, but this seems like a good time to bring one more voice into this conversation. 
When I planned this episode with Amy, she asked me to speak to one of the farmers who participated in her research so that listeners could get a sense of the farmer's perspective when scientists show up to conduct on-farm research. One of the farms that participated in Amy's research was Laughing Crow Organics in Pemberton, so I asked co-owner Andrew Budgel to jump on the phone with me to share his thoughts. You'll hear my conversation with Budgie, and then we'll finish up with the end of my conversation with Amy. Andrew Budgel. Hi, how's it going? How's it going, Jordan? <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for a lot for getting on the phone to talk with me. Uh, Andrew Budgel, who normally goes by Budgie and who will henceforth in this conversation be called Budgie by me. Budgie, I understand that you were one of the participating farmers in Amy Norgard's research on organic nutrient management. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, we took part in uh, Amy's project. I guess it started three years ago or two years ago, and it went on for a couple of years there. It was great. So I guess I just want to start by asking you what what motivated you to participate in the first place? Well, um, I'm trying to remember when we first when we first heard about it. Like I, we might have been we might have been approached. By, well, Amy worked at Icecap Organics just up the road from us, so I think she she saw, I think and she and then she was and then she went off and did her masters at at UBC, and I think she approached us to take to take part. And like you know, nutrient management on a an organic farm is you know it's a, it's a tough thing, and we're it's something we're always thinking about. And at that time, we were constantly remodeling every year because we couldn't come up with like a really solid strategy. So this kind of felt like when Amy sort of told us about what she had planned, it kind of felt like. You know, she was going to get something out of it, and it felt like potentially we would might get some strategies out of the project. And at that time, were you? I can probably assume you were applying composts in some way, shape, or form, uh, like before before starting participating in the project. Yeah, we were like every everybody on the road here was kind of like running somewhat similar programs, but I don't think anybody knew exactly what everybody else was doing. But we were all all applying all applying compost. We were also applying a bit of granular fertilizer alongside it, but without like a real clear strategy. Yeah, well, that was going to be one of my questions. Was just like, did you prior to participating in the research, did you already have like a really honed sense of the nitrate and phosphorus levels that were in the compost you were using? Well, to be honest, we did. Like we did. We had done <clears throat> we had we had some tests on it. So we were like like we had some idea of what was going on. Um because we had we had comp we had compost tests and we were using uh we were using an agrologist to give us some recommendations. But um, I don't know if that translates into saying we had a real clear strategy of knowing how to use that information. But so I think that's more what we got out of the, the, the project. And leading when you were when you were asked to participate, did you have any reservations uh, ahead of like ahead of ahead of accepting participation? Yeah, like definitely a little bit, you know, you you get a little when it comes to at that time, for sure, talking about our fertility program, you're a little bit nervous that you know, you're going to talk to a, talk to a pro and, and, you know, the, the honest truth is it kind of felt like, Hey, we're farming and we don't always totally know exactly what we're doing. <laughs> I, I, I can totally relate. So you're just communicating to me, like almost a little bit of self-consciousness about opening up your practices to outside kind of investigators or researchers. Yeah, absolutely. One one part frightened to to share, on the other part hoping we got to see everybody what everybody else was sharing. 
Um, okay. And, and, and I want to ask you about what you learned, but really quickly, um, if we just focus on process for a sec, um, yeah. was it, was it difficult to accommodate what Amy and her team needed as far as laying out certain plots so that she could, you know, conduct her methodology appropriately? No, it was, they set the thing up pretty well. Like it was, uh, you know, the, in, in, in short, like the, you know, they, they had, they had three different, they had three different scenarios. One of them was to measure how much fertility we put down. Um, and another one and two other ones where they did their, they set up their scenarios and they showed up. Um, they kind of worked around us. Uh, they actually calibrated our machines in front of us, which was, you know, going on to the question that you're alluding to there. We, we, you know, we got to see them do a, a pretty solid calibrate, a bunch of calibration work that we've taken a lot from, um, and yeah, and they got on it. They, you know, they, they worked around us. No, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, was that the question? Yeah. It wasn't a hassle at all. It, it was, it was, they were, they were great. What I, I've just, you've got me curious. What were they calibrating that, that was helpful to, to watch? Well, you know, they, they showed up and one of the, one of the main, one of the first questions that, that, that Amy had was, okay, what, what, what exactly is your application rate um, of compost? And, and, you know, I had some idea as to what we were trying to do. Um, and, and, you know, I had some idea as to like how, how fast we were running the, you know, our, our compost spreader and how fast the tractor was running. And we had sort of settled on where we thought it was pretty good, but you know, she, you know, she didn't just take our word for it. She went out there and measured what we were putting down. So she had to calibrate, she had to, you know, she had to put out some tarps and see exactly how much compost was, was going down. And then, and then we also we were also laying down some some fertility through a through a drop spreader, which you know can sometimes it's an old drop spreader can sometimes be challenging to to figure out exactly what you're putting down. And so they laid laid out a bunch of tarps and they they got a feel for exactly what we were doing, which was which was a really nice refresher for us. Oh yeah, no, I would I, I, that totally makes sense that you would kind of it, it kind of you got to have a review of your own practices and how precise they are um, because it's essential for someone like a researcher like Amy to know exactly what what she and her team are, are putting down that's really cool um, okay so two seasons of research on your farm um, these three different types of applications uh, analyzing the 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 pre and post pre pre-planting and post harvest um, nitrates and phosphorus and carbon levels mm -hmm. in the soil and then looking at your crop yields and your input costs and all that stuff, what, what did you, what did you take away or learn from this research? What did you, what did you learn that that'll probably be useful if, if anything in the future? Well, okay. So, so for, first of all, we definitely like settled on as like, not directly as only as a result of that study, but it was a huge contributor to just us settling on a strategy. And, you know, we learned that like a reasonable strategy to, to, to amend our fields is to, you know, target, target nitrogen through, through, through compost and we could, and, and top or tar sorry, target phosphorus through a compost application. Then we could top up with, with, with some granular fertilizer. And, and we had some numbers to follow and sort of had a bit of an idea as like a framework as to how to do that. So on one hand, we got, we got that, like we definitely got an idea as to how things could be done, but we learned a bunch of other cool things. Like we also learned just by looking at all this data, 
we learned that like how different different composts could be like because you know we got to look at all these different farms that we didn't you know we didn't know what these who the farms were but we did get to see all their composts being tested and so we were able to look at all these composts and realize like oh not all these composts are created equally they're, they're actually very different one from another um so that was neat to see it was really neat to see what other farms were doing um just getting a feel kind of like at the beginning of our talk there getting a feel getting a little bit of a window into what everybody else was doing because i think you know like i don't know like it just didn't it, it wasn't at, at that time it was hard to it was hard to get to get a feel for what what other people were doing or, or what what they what they felt worked it just didn't seem like people were talking about it all that much and so amy got definitely got people talking about it and also had these had these these nice spreadsheets that helped us helped us look at it um we learned a little bit about you know we learned a we learned about phosphorus buildup in the soil we learned that you know in in some spots that's a problem in other spots it isn't interestingly it isn't really a problem in our area um which was kind of which was kind of cool to see so and and we learned about calibrating machines like there was just kind of all this periphery stuff going on um we learned we've got they showed up and did a bunch of soil samples and were really happy to talk to us about doing soil sampling like there was kind of just this and this, this, this endless bunch of kind of cool farm stuff going on that we got to ask questions about and 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 take part in so we got a fair bit out of it i and definitely we got more out of it than just creating a bit more of a a solid framework for making fertility decisions, but that was definitely part of it. And not to mention, we, we st we're still in touch with those guys and they, they still offer us a little bit of help every year when we have questions. Right. And it, it had to have felt good to just uh, contribute to the knowledge base, right? Like just to, just to be one of the data points and helping figure out some of these puzzles. Yeah, ab absolutely. We're always on board for, for stuff like that. Like with, we, consistently try to take part in as many things as we as we can and we often get way more out of it than than what's what's advertised so i i had i had two questions left but you've kind of answered one of them like i was going to get you to, to to emphasize what are the upsides to accepting research on the farm when when you receive requests you've kind of done a good job of covering that so I'll just jump to the last question, Budgie, which is like, are there any downsides to consider or advice you have or like, are there certain kinds of farmers who shouldn't consider, you know, allowing research on their farm? Anything like that? Oh, geez. Um, I, no, I don't think I can't imagine there is a I can't imagine that that we saw a downside like, you know, they uh, we we sort of. No, I, 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 I'd have to really dig around and make something up. I, oh. I don't, I don't think I've got anything for you there. Yeah, that's okay. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't assume that you would. I just, but I wanted to ask the question. Um, fair, fair. But uh, mainly, I mean, I've, I've participated in a bit of research myself on my farm, and and it's there's there there haven't really been any downsides for me either. And uh, part of the point in talking to you was just to, um, just so other farmers could know a little bit more about what it's like in case they have an opportunity to participate. Oh, right um, on. Cool. But Budgie, listen, that, that's that's it. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us um, for this for this episode on on Amy's research. Awesome. Nice talking, Jordan. So Amy, we're we're almost done, but um I want to I want to broaden out even more and just get you to like 
educate us a bit or speculate like earlier in the conversation when we talked about like the role of livestock dense regions in just producing a lot of um phosphorus as a byproduct right through their manure and poop that ends up in our compost and ends up on our agricultural lands um you mentioned that you know you just pointed out what that really means um or, or how that translates is we grow in this country lots and lots and lots and lots of grains further east, like out on the prairies. It gets imported, and I'm just I'm gonna oversimplify. It gets imported into the livestock-heavy Fraser Valley, fed to the animals there, and now we've got like a concentration of essentially prairie phosphorus over here in BC. And so your research is just looking at how we might better cycle nutrients and manage nutrients like in the context of BC farms. But do you have anything to say about like the larger context of like the nutrient cycle of prairies to BC and other ideas for how we can fix those cycles in in an even kind of more macro scale way? Yeah, that's a great question. And um as you say, this really was a farm scale level research project. And we were very focused on like, you know, the implications of if we're asking farmers to reduce their compost application to balance their, uh, the phosphorus in their fields, like what does that do to their input costs? What does that do to soil carbon? Um, How does that also impact, you know, nitrates at the end of the season, kind of trying to look at this from what are the actual implications from or what are the actual implications on like the functioning of that farm and arguably like at the field scale. And so that really was the focus of this study. But as you say, like if we zoom out and kind of look at this as a bigger picture. So in my mind, I'm actually imagining if I was floating above that field and looking at, as you say, kind of simplifying it, but looking at this livestock industry that we have in the Fraser Valley, which I know exists elsewhere in the province, but simplification. Uh, so livestock industry in the Fraser Valley, we have grains coming in from from other places being fed to these livestock. That has to go on, onto our field somewhere. And so then I'm coming in, I'm working with farmers and trying to figure out how do we reduce that application. But then, you know, I'm zoomed out, I'm looking at that. And you can imagine if I'm telling this farmer to not to basically, you know, stop applying or reduce your applications to your field of that um, that manure that exists, then it really begs that question of then, go? like, where am I saying <laughs> yes, exactly? Where does that manure go? Um, manure is bulky and it's heavy, like it's got water content. That it's kind of crazy to imagine like that being exported in that bulky way back to the prairies just to you know close this phosphorus loop. So that's kind of hard to imagine. But it really is, I think, in, you know, really looking at the outcomes of this and recommending next steps of even recommending like, okay, well, you know, how do we integrate integrate cover crops into this instead of um, doing kind of almost an input substitution, arguably, you know, we take, we're reducing our compost application, we're putting feather meal in our field. um, And like, what does that actually do for like the broader sustainability in that landscape? So that is definitely, you know, something that I've been looking at lately and kind of asking the like, okay, well, then how do we answer that? I mean, the ideal situation would be uh, those the integrated systems that I think we can kind of all come back to, of you know, we can only have so much livestock on the landscape as what we can grow food for them. And maybe we are growing those grains somewhere here in BC that we could actually like move that phosphorus back to. Um, and then 
having that phosphorus, some of that phosphorus obviously come out and also feed our vegetable crops and having that be a little bit more of an integrated cycle. Um, there's only other ways to target this issue. You know, we can um, bring engineers into the, into the problem and have them, you know, extract phosphorus out of the, out of the manures and compost and sh- like ship that back to the prairies. And maybe that's an option as well. But we really do, you know, if you kind of like look out or zoom out and really question like the inputs themselves and like the carbon footprints or the energy embodied in them. And even asking the question of like, how do we maintain organic integrity on our farms kind of like up or above and beyond just like meeting rules and almost what feels like sometimes input substitution. Cause even then asking like, well, where does that feather meal come from? And it's like, well, that feather meal is coming from the the same place that my manure is coming from. It's just the nitrogen. And so I almost like need that livestock industries to still be here to have that feather meal. I mean, you can see like all the threads you start pulling at. It is really interesting though. And even asking um, like, where did that nitrogen come from as well? most likely that nitrogen didn't originate as biologically uh, fixed nitrogen, you know, with legumes and cover crops and other farms, most likely that nitrogen is coming as synthetic nitrogen on the field somewhere. Um, maybe that's on grains in another province. Um, and then it's coming out here. We get nitrogen and phosphorus here. And so, yeah, I kind of, I do, as you say, I've kind of, I've been working in this long enough and I really, I do live and breathe organics and I really, I kind of like playing devil's advocate and poking holes in it and just, um, you know, arguing that we're trying to make those, these decisions with kind of like the balance of environmental and economic outcomes. We're all just these little farms in a landscape. Um, like there's no one context, but, um, yeah, I think having these conversations and asking these questions of, like, I think my project was very on-farm focused, trying to um, have tangible takeaways for farmers, asking, like, implications of um, trying to reduce phosphorus loading, asking if, like, you know, then how how else do we get soil carbon? Um, but you can zoom out and you can just see that, like, some of these solutions aren't going to be solved on the farm. I think that's a nice place to leave it, Amy. And it was just a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to... Uh to share your research with us. And thanks for the research. Uh, it's just, as a farmer, I said this to one of your colleagues in another interview just yesterday. Um, it's, uh, it's just awesome to see that there are people in my province who are working to help us gain knowledge and solve problems. Thanks for having me, Jordan. And before I go, I do want to um, mention and say thanks to the various organizations that supported our work. So this project was funded by the Organic Science Cluster 3 under the AgriScience Program of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Funding was also provided by MyTax Career Connect. And of course, a huge thank you to the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab at UBC, which um, is the lab that this research was conducted through. And that was my supervisor, Dr. Sean Smuckler, as well as Dr. Kira Borden and Dr. Delisa Lewis um, provided uh, an amazing amount of mentorship for me as well. So huge thank you to all of those researchers. Amy, this has all been really interesting. And I'm just wondering for those who want to learn more, like where can they go to delve into your research a little more? Yeah, so we have a research website still. So all of this research um, was conducted when I was a master's student at UBC in the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab. So we have a webpage called Organic Vegetable Nutrient Management. Um, I believe we can provide that link in the show notes. So if people go to that website, um, there's a link to a nutrient management reference guide, which again is just even more hyperlinks to um, some really great nutrient management resources. 
And then there's also a, um, a report titled Winter 2020 Regional Field Trial Farmer Reports. So that is actually just like a PDF final report from this project, which has you know, some fun graphs and kind of a written summary of what we've just discussed today. And then also has compost um, test results from the project and also um, uh, a very extensive table for all the nerdy farmers out there who really want to uh, get nuanced about uh, what other farmers are doing on their fields for the actual nutrient applications that we're measuring in our project. Right. And then as I understand, you'll be leading an online workshop um, on your research in March of 2022. If people catch this podcast in time, they might be hearing it ahead of that workshop. But even if not, presumably they'll be able to locate that somewhere online as well. And they can always check back to these show notes for this episode for more information. Yep, exactly. Either in the show notes or um, that, uh, that workshop will also be linked on our website as well. All right, that concludes the first of two episodes about some recent research of the UBC Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab. A reminder to check the show notes for each episode if you want to learn more on these topics. These two episodes were funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries Knowledge and Technology Transfer Program. You can find the other episode in this series featuring the research of Raylani Kessler in the Organic BC podcast feed. All right, that's it for now. Talk to you soon, everyone. <laughs>